Let's open our Bibles now. John chapter 14. We are going to conclude the 14th chapter of John's gospel today. And while you're doing that, I'd like to begin by asking you, giving you a question to consider. What would you do if you knew you had 24 hours to live? That might be a question you've considered before. It might be one that you don't like to consider. But what would you do if you knew you had 24 hours to live? I'll give you a few moments to think that through. This week, I asked several people that question to see, you know, what responses were out there. I have a response, but what would other people do? And most, uh, I guess I expected, uh, most mentioned something like spend time with family, spend time with loved ones or friends. Some mentioned that they would pray more. Some said that they would be more intentional in sharing the gospel with specific uh, loved ones that they have. Others said that they would travel and enjoy creation. One serious response was, I'm going to quote it to you, I would do something much different than I would be doing otherwise. I would focus on things that matter and care very little about things I spend most of my time on. In contrast to that, one humorous response was eat tacos. Another was call my boss and let him know I won't be in tomorrow. (laughs) I asked that question and begin our study because that is the situation Jesus is in. In our passage of study in John chapter 14, verses 25 through 31, Jesus knows that he has less than 24 hours to live. If you recall, we're we're still in that upper room. He is in the upper room with his disciples. It's the night of his betrayal by Judas. Judas has already been dismissed to go ahead and put that plan into motion. It's the day before he would be beaten, tortured, and killed on the cross. And he knows that it's coming. Jesus knows he has a very long day ahead of him. So what is Jesus doing with his last 24 hours? Well, he's enjoying his last meal with his disciples, his his close friends. But he's also preparing them for his departure. And we've seen that over the course of of this section in John's gospel, that that's what he's been doing. He has now turned his focus to preparing his, his disciples for the time that he would leave. So in a situation where we would think that the disciples would be there to comfort the one who is going to face all of this, we see the opposite. We see the one who is going to die comforting those that he will leave behind. Last week, we studied the words of Jesus as he promised the Holy Spirit as a helper, one that will step in in that time of need to bring comfort to the disciples. This week, as Jesus faces death within 24 hours, we consider the son's concerns that he continues to have towards his disciples in in selfless strength and divine courage. We'll get to see his concern for truth, his concern for peace, his concern for joy, his concern for faith, 
and his concern for love. And I am very grateful this morning that I get to teach this because a lot of things have transpired in the last week. And this is a great reminder. If you have, if you have gone through chaotic moments recently, or maybe even right now today, things are at unrest. I hope you leave here encouraged because this is such a good reminder to me. We were talking about it in the back. I'm, with everything that's going on, I'm so grateful in the providence of God that I get to study this passage, what, let alone I get to teach it and, and preach it from the pulpit, but I got to study it this week. And it all kind of hit me this morning as I was rehearsing. I rehearse just like I do up here. My hands are moving and Natalie walks in to eat her cereal and I'm like, I'm still, I'm still preaching right now. And it's awkward. And she's literally, she sat next to me this morning while I was doing all this. But during rehearsal, I, I just, I kept getting reminded, wow, this is timely. Like, I need to know this. I need to hear this this morning. So if that's where you are, I pray that you leave here encouraged today. Let's look at Jesus's concern for truth. In John chapter 14, we're going to start in verse 25, and we'll, we'll just go through 26 right here. Jesus, continuing that conversation with, with his disciples, said, These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you. But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. He says these things, and he's referring back to verse 24 when he talks about the Father's word. He said, these things I, Jesus, have spoken to you, remaining 11 disciples, while I am still with you. Again, implied that there will be a time in the shortcoming. We've seen that over and over recently in John's gospel, that he is leaving. But I am telling, I've told you these things while I am still with you. But the helper, and, and Blake did a really good job last week of defining for us what that means, because that's a difficult translation to the English. The, the Greek word there is parakletos. This is the one called on during your time of need. This is the helper that will come in and help you, the one that I will ask, Jesus says, and the Father will send in, in, in my name, on my behalf. He, and just a slight theological, we'll call it theological land yet, South Louisiana. He, the Spirit is a person. I think sometimes we think of the Spirit as an it. It will help me, but the Spirit is a person. He will do two things. He will teach you all things, and he will bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The two things that Jesus tells the disciples that the helper will do. Teach you all things, bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. That means that the Holy Spirit will actively work to bring to their remembrance anything that Jesus has spoken. Why? so that they would record it. This was something, this scripture that we have was set during that time. When you talk about the New Testament, when you have the disciples that are recording this narrative, this thing that we've been studying for, what, two years now, John's gospel, so that the helper would come, so that they would remember these things and they would write it down. And they did. 
and the Spirit will teach those same things to the disciples so that they would understand them. And the logical implication there is that through understanding the word, they would be obedient because they love Jesus. Remember, you look at John 14, 15. We read that, right? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Not only that, but the disciples would preach and they would teach that stuff that they now understand because of the Holy Spirit to other individuals. And in that whole process, they would be sanctified. As they depended upon the Holy Spirit to bring to their remembrance everything that Jesus had said, as they depended upon the Holy Spirit to teach them, to help them understand, they would be sanctified in their dependence upon God. I know we celebrated Independence Day last week as a country. But as, as Christians, we are not independent. In fact, it's quite the opposite. We are very dependent. We are dependent upon God for our salvation. We are dependent upon one another as the body of Christ. We are dependent upon Jesus as the head of the body. This helper, the the Holy Spirit, was absolutely necessary for the disciples to remember and understand the things that Jesus said to them. And we know that even in John's gospel, we've seen already that the disciples didn't understand everything Jesus said at that time. Turn back to John chapter 2. This is after Jesus cleanses the temple. And in John chapter 2, verse 18 through 22, we get to see how they didn't fully comprehend everything. Starting in verse 18 of John 2, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. That's so interesting that John is able to write that. Why is he able to write that? Because the Holy Spirit has brought it to his remembrance and allowed him to understand. Look at verse 22. When therefore he was raised from from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. When Jesus had raised from the dead, then they remembered. Look at John chapter 12. Verses 12 through 16. This is the triumphal entry. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first. But when Jesus was glorified, then they did what? They remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. They needed the helper to illuminate their minds. They needed the helper to help them understand the words that Jesus had spoken. So what does this mean? Well, first it means that the words that we have in Scripture are divinely inspired and divinely authoritative. 
Scripture serves as our firm foundation upon which we can stand and will not fall. It's like our glasses. Yesterday we went to a a housewarming party in Lafayette, and it was one of those where you go inside and outside. And I don't know, for those of you who wear glasses, that's a difficult decision, right? Do I wear glasses or do do I wear sunglasses? Because if I'm wearing sunglasses, I'm good outside. But as soon as I go inside, like right now, you're all a blur. I can't see you very well. What scripture is for us, is it allows us, it's the lens through which we can see spiritual things and actually understand them. This is our firm foundation. It provides us with the ability to understand truth because it is truth. It supersedes any experience you've ever had, any emotion you've ever had. If it doesn't line up with the truth of God's word, the truth of God's word is not the problem. That's what scripture is very important. It's divinely inspired and divinely authoritative. If you look at 2 Timothy chapter 3, Paul, writing to his disciple, talks about Scripture. Second Timothy 3, starting in verse 14, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. There he's referring to the Old Testament. The word used there is pointing back to the Old Testament which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture, all of it. And I'm not gonna get into it this morning, but that word right there is graphe. That is, it it will point when you look at other authors in the New Testament, it's gonna basically say that all of the New Testament too, all of scripture is breathed out by God. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. All of scripture is breathed out by God, recorded by man, but inspired by God. Go to 2 Corinthians, another writing of Paul. 2 Corinthians chapter two. And you can actually hold your place there for a second. The second Corinthians chapter two, starting in verse six, Paul here is defending his apostolic message here to this church. I'm sorry, did I say second Corinthians or first? I meant first. First Corinthians two. Starting in verse six. Yet among the mature we do impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen nor ear heard nor the heart of man imagine what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us 
through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the Spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God, and we impart this in words, not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. They've gained understanding by the Spirit of God, and they impart those words. It's divinely inspired. God's word is divinely inspired and authoritative. What that means here is that you can trust Scripture. You can trust it. Not only that, but you need it. Just as God breathed life into man at creation, his God-breathed word brings life to those who are found in Christ. That's where we get life. That's why I'm excited to be in it this morning, because I need that. I need to get back in the word and see that God's peace remains forever, that God's joy is something that I can have, that I can look forward to. It directs our lives by pointing us to Jesus. It's, it's not by telling us a list of things that we have to do, but by pointing us to Jesus so that we can know him better and better and that we can follow him more and more. Now, this also means that just as the disciples needed the helper to teach them, we need the helper. 1 Corinthians, going back to 1 Corinthians chapter 2, I told you to hold your place there, but I didn't. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Look right below where we cut off at verse 14. Talk about our dependence. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Look at that language. The natural person. What that's saying is, as we come into this world, that we are in our natural state, and we can see in other places in Scripture, we are spiritually dead. We are, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and not able to understand. The disciples were dependent upon the Holy Spirit, so are we. And it's not just to understand the spiritual truths, but also to receive and embrace them as they are communicated without twisting them to fit our biases, to, to, to fit our preconceived notions and, and the desires of our flesh. The helper doesn't just help us in the mental exercise of study, but in taking the understanding that results from that mental exercise and trusting it to be truth. So we need to spend time doing the disciplined mental exercise of reading scripture to understand it. It isn't this idea that's out there. Actually, I heard this uh, a little over a week ago. Again, it's not the first time I've ever heard it, but I actually heard somebody say, I don't really 
need scripture because I've had this spiritual experience and the Holy Spirit will teach me through experiences. This is the divine, divinely authoritative and inspired word of God. And how are you going to be able to discern what is the spirit and what is just you? You have to have some form of, some standard of truth. Because what if your experience is different from mine? Who, who are we to say that one another's wrong unless we have a standard to go by? And that's what scripture can do for us. But we need the Holy Spirit. And so in our study to know and understand scripture, the Holy Spirit is our helper, leading us past that mental ascent to accept the truth, but to trust it and then to apply it, to embrace that truth. That's why we must pray as we approach the living word of God for the spirit of God to help us in our study. Our hearts are prone to ignoring the difficult truths. or to at least manipulate them so that they don't invade the the comfort of our our fleshly desires, our sinful desires. So we must pray for the helper to to do that, to to help. And it doesn't need to be like this long Christian church drawn out prayer. God, I need your help in studying scripture right now. Can you please help me? Holy Spirit, help me. Jesus was concerned about truth in his final hours. He was also concerned about peace. Going back to John chapter 14, verse 27, he says, Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. What kind of peace is Jesus referring to? I identify two aspects as communicated here. The peace, his peace, the peace of Christ, and peace of heart. The peace of Christ is that type of peace displayed when, when Jesus faced the, the mockery, the hostility, the betrayal, the death. The kind of peace described in, in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23 when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. The kind of peace described in Isaiah, chapter 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a, pe- uh, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. This is not circumstantial peace. This is not temporary peace provided by something like insurance or a retirement fund or reliable transportation or a security system in your home or a wall of protection. This is eternal peace with God that only comes through Jesus Christ. Jesus described this peace as peace that is different from what the world gives. See, the things of the world can provide you with peace of mind, but Jesus provides us with peace of heart. 
He says, not as the world gives, let not your what be troubled. Not your minds. Let not your hearts be troubled. Neither let them be afraid. This is the peace that Paul describes in Philippians 4, 7 as the peace that surpasses all what? Understanding. This is peace that surpasses the mind, but goes to the heart. And it will, as Paul says, guard the hearts and the minds of those who are in Christ. So Christian, let not your heart be troubled by any circumstance you are in today. Instead, embrace the peace of Christ provided to you. And I know that's easier said than done, but it needs to be said and done. If you are in Christ, you have eternal peace of heart with God. So when you begin to feel the blood pressure rising, mine's a dead giveaway. My, my ears get red. My ears red right now. My ears get red. When you start to feel that anxiety creeping in, look to Jesus. When you start to feel like everything's falling apart around you, lift your eyes from the circumstances that you're in and look to Jesus, the one who has given you eternal peace that surpasses all temporary trials, all understanding. Jesus, within 24 hours of his death, concerned himself with the peace of the disciples and also our peace. So embrace that peace. He also concerned himself with their joy. In verse 28, he said, you heard me say to you, I am going away and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. He said, you heard me say to you, and then he quotes John 14, two through three. I'm going away. I'm coming back to you. And then he says, if you loved me, you would have rejoiced. He is directing their attention to joy. You would have rejoiced. Why does he say this? He says, because I go to the Father, the Father is greater, and this is not inequality, right? We've already seen multiple times throughout this gospel that Jesus, he said things that made people mad because he was declaring himself equal with the Father. So this isn't inequality, but in submission. He is submitting to the Father, so the Father is greater in that role that he plays. He's saying, you should take great joy in the fact that I'm returning to the Father. Just as they took great joy in being in his presence, it should bring them joy that he will be in the presence of his Father, that he will be returning to that glory with which he has eternally shared with the Father. Jesus pursued and anticipated joy. And it is also in his going to the Father that joy should be produced because it is implied that Jesus would have accomplished their eternal joy, our eternal joy, by going to the cross of redemption. He pursued and anticipated joy and wanted his disciples to pursue it as well. And again, this isn't joy as the world gives joy, but joy in Christ. The author of Hebrews describes Jesus' pursuit of joy. In Hebrews 12, 1 through 2, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight 
and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. For the joy that was set before him, that joy of returning to glory with his father and the joy of at the same time in doing that, bringing many sons into glory with him, into glory with him, Hebrews 2.10, through his death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus had also given the disciples additional news that should produce joy. What did he say? I'm leaving, but what? I'm gonna come back for you. In his final hours, Jesus concerns himself with joy, his joy primarily. He has every right to pursue that joy. But through the accomplishing of his joy, our joy as well. We can find eternal joy in Christ that endures through all things we might face, just as that eternal joy endured the cross. So let's look to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith in every circumstance and be filled with the eternal joy that only he provides. Jesus also concerned himself with the disciples' faith. In verse 29, he says, And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. He repeats John 13, 19. I'm telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. I love how John Piper described verse 29. He said, in other words, in addition to all the things that happen to Jesus and all the things that Jesus does, which in themselves would awaken faith, he adds this prediction. He doesn't just experience painful things and do glorious things to awaken faith. He predicts them. And this was the key sentence for me, which means he weaves the thread of sovereignty through his final words. And I think that is why John recorded these words of Jesus. It fits his purpose, right? John 20. I mention it almost every time I preach. John 20, verses 30 through 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus wanted his disciples to do what? Believe. I am telling you these things so that you may believe when they do happen. Believe that he is the sovereign son of God in control of all that will take place so that when it does take place, they don't see him as a victim. You need to know, disciples, what's going to happen and that I know about it. Because when it does happen, I don't want you to think that I'm the victim of those circumstances. They don't take my life but I lay it down. The good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. 
so that they don't see him as the victim, but they see the fullness of his glory. Glory is of the only son from the father who out of obedience sacrificed himself so that he might bring many sons and daughters into the family, into the glory that he shares with his father. This was to increase their faith. God's sovereignty should do the same for us. It should strengthen our weak faith. This sovereignty seen here in this gospel should produce at least, at least two results that I was able to identify in our hearts. First of all, we should fall in love with Jesus. This is the sovereign son of God who was in control of every situation he was in. Who, at his will, could have stopped that process of redemption, not gone to the cross. But he didn't do that. Instead, he laid down his life. He who knew no sin took on our unrighteousness. He bore the perfect, just wrath of his Father on our behalf so that we would be reconciled. And we were given his righteousness. We were declared innocent on that day. Our faith should increase because God is in control. That statement was true in the darkest hour of human history. And so it's true in your darkest hour too. God is sovereign. Nothing occurs outside of his control and he is working all things according to his will in ways that might be difficult for us to understand, might be difficult for us to accept. But they're all gonna lead to the way that he would get most glory. See, God wants the most glory possible. He wants to put himself on full display. And sometimes that may mean I lose a job. Sometimes that may mean for you college people, you just really struggle. What lies ahead of me? I'm in this weird place of life right now. I'm no longer a kid. I'm transitioning to adulthood. What am I supposed to do with my life? For you adults, maybe trying to have kids and are struggling with that? God is sovereign. And he's going to work all things out so that he gets the greatest amount of glory, so that he will be most clearly seen, that he will be able to put all of his attributes on display and say, here I am, world. Here I am, child. This is who your father is. And while it may be difficult now, it all ultimately ends up for our good as well. As we will reign eternally with our Savior, we will be in his presence. Jesus concerned himself with their faith. He also concerned himself, lastly, with love. Verses 30 through 31 He said, I will no longer talk much with you for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. 
He said, I will no longer talk much with you. Time is running out. Remember that divine hour that we've been looking at throughout this whole gospel? That divine hour has come. Because Satan, the ruler of this world, is coming. That lifelong conflict is about to come to an end. And then he communicates a very important truth next. He says, he has no claim on me. He has no credible charge against me. That's so important for us to believe and understand. Because without that, we don't have salvation. Because what we needed was the perfect, spotless Lamb of God to be sacrificed on our behalf, to take on the punishment that we deserved, to put an end. We needed an eternal being, yet man. 100% God, 100% man, to represent man and to satisfy the eternal wrath of God. And if he was not innocent, if Satan had a claim on him, then we should all be very worried this morning instead of being encouraged. But I want you to turn to a few spots with me so you can see this as declared in Scripture, the authoritative, divinely inspired Word of God. Turn back to 1 Peter chapter 2. Verses 21 through 22, right before where we read in verse 23. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. 2 Corinthians, for real this time. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Verse 21. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Turning back to Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 through 15. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do, not have a great, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Satan had nothing on Jesus. No claim. But what does Jesus say? He says, but... I do as the Father has commanded me. I obey my Father with a purpose statement behind it so that the world may know that I love the Father. Jesus concerned himself with displaying the perfect love that he has for the Father. And in that display, the world would see it and know it. We've come full circle, haven't we? If you've been here over the past three weeks, that stands out to you because Jesus has talked about, he's woven this theme of obedience out of love throughout this whole chapter. 
John 14, 15, he said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. John 14, 21, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my father and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Verse 23, Jesus answered him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. Jesus has been preparing the disciples for his departure and used this conversation to lift their eyes from their perspective of the cross and allow them to see the cross from his perspective. They, he, they got to see his concerns. What have we seen? What did he concern himself with? Well, we saw the spirit of truth given to us to know understand, believe truth as communicated in scripture, the God-breathed word that brings life to us. We've seen the peace of Christ given to us that endures all circumstances. We've seen the eternal joy found in Christ's death, burial, resurrection, ascension, and promised return. We've seen the, the faith that is possible to have in the sovereignty of God and we've seen the perfect love of the Son for the Father displayed in obedience. So Christian, rely on the Spirit to guide you, to teach you in all truth in the Word of God. Walk in the peace of Christ that is given to us. Don't settle for peace of mind when you can have peace of heart. Let not your hearts be troubled by the temporary troubles of this world. Pursue joy, but not as the world defines it, but joy in Christ's work on our behalf. Look to Jesus for your joy and satisfaction because nothing else and no one else can provide you with that. Trust and exercise faith in the sovereignty of God when everything feels like it's falling apart and Satan is ruling the day. No. Believe, trust that everything occurs according to the will of God, that he is in control of all things. And he is working all things out so that he might gain the most glory. And allow that to increase your faith in him. Lastly, live in obedience to the commands of Christ. Not as a list of things to do that you can check off, but so that the world would know the perfect love of Jesus. That's why we exist, right? We exist to make much of God, not ourselves. Wherever we go, in our neighborhoods or to the uttermost parts of the world, to the nations, by reflecting Jesus Christ. So let's live in obedience to the commands of Christ out of the love that we have for him so that the world would see that. And if you don't believe in Jesus, this guy that we proclaim as the savior of the world, I'm glad you're here this morning. And you are welcome to come here every single time we get together. I want you to know that all of these eternal gifts that we've talked about this morning can be yours. The love, that joy, that peace, having some standard of truth, all of that can be yours if you will just trust in Jesus, if you will believe that he is the son of God that came to earth to die on your behalf for your sin 
so that the relationship between you and your creator would be restored. There's no other way. We've seen that in this gospel that we've been studying. There's no other way to to satisfy God. Only trust in Christ will lead to that. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for your, your word that you've inspired by the power of your spirit to man, foolish man, to record for us. And we're grateful for your providence and protection of that word throughout history. So that here in 2017, a group of people from southwest Louisiana could get together and, and find life in that word. Father, we're grateful for the peace that you've given us in your son, Jesus. We're grateful for the eternal joy that we have. And Father, we ask that as, as we endure tough times, as we have chaotic moments, Father, that for the joy that is set before us, we would endure all things. And then by the power of your Holy Spirit, we would persevere until that glorious day where we will be reunited with your Son. Father, we ask you to increase our faith and trust in you and your sovereignty that that you have everything under control and that it's not about us, it's about your glory. Will you let our hearts be okay with that? And use your spirit to push us to pursue that above all else. Father, as we go into this time of worship, of singing songs of praise to you, I pray that out of the encouragement and the, and the, the joy that we would have experienced this morning by studying your word, we would respond out of the overflow of our hearts that are no longer troubled. Sing praises to you. Father, we ask you to glorify yourself in and through every one of us. And we submit to your authority. We submit to your will. Whatever that looks like, Father. Glorify yourself. It's in Jesus' name we pray and by the power of the Holy Spirit.